we find ourselves in Esther 5. Esther 5. And um, as we've looked at the book of Esther, uh, the study that we've been going through, we've been calling it Invisible God. Invisible God. The amazing thing about the book of Esther is that it is undeniable that God is working. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, it is undeniable that God is working in the book of Esther. But God's name isn't found even one time in the whole book. But if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes, uh, oftentimes, this relates to, and this helps us to understand, how God works in our lives today. Because we find God working, but oftentimes, as God is working, we don't see it as God working. And so what we find here is that Esther really paints a beautiful picture of the amazing pathway that the invisible God chooses to take. And so in the book of Esther, we have four primary characters that are named. And we've discussed over the last couple of weeks how really the fifth character that the book is all about is God and his work throughout it. But there are four named characters in the book of Esther. The first person we meet is a man by the name of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is really, really unique. He is an invertebrate. Does anyone know what the word invertebrate means? It means he has no spine. Ahasuerus was the king, but Ahasuerus was a pushover. We find that Ahasuerus decided to lead through manipulation. So he wanted to get people to like him or to think that he was the one who could provide. We're going to see that again this week. Uh, we find that if manipulation didn't work, then he turned to domination. I will do this and you will obey me or else. And then if those two didn't work, he resorted to abdication, meaning he walked away from he said, if I can't get my way through manipulation or domination, I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to walk away. The spineless wonder, King Ahasuerus, the scariest man on the planet at the time. And then we find a woman by the name of Esther is introduced. And Esther is brought before the king. She was part of the uh, world's worst beauty pageant, right? Um, where the uh, losers all got placed in a harem for the king to do with as he pleased, and the winner became the queen, whom the king got to do with as he pleased. So it was really kind of a lose-lose situation for Esther. And so what we find is Esther, this woman of Jewish descent, raised by her cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai. Now, Mordecai spent his whole life hiding his heritage. His whole life, he told Esther, don't tell them you're Jewish. Don't behave like a Jew. Don't do Jewish things. And so in chapter four, when Mordecai starts doing Jewish things, it really kind of sets off Esther. And she confronts Mordecai and says, what do you think you're doing? But it's the way that Mordecai had raised her. He raised her as his own daughter. And so that's the way Mordecai had raised her. And so now he has to come face to face with Esther, face to face with the foundation that he has laid. And he has to repent of these behaviors and he has to do it in a public way. And then we find a man by the name of Haman, Haman and Haman. We find as the son of Agag, the Amalekite or the descendant of Agag, the Amalekite and the Malachites are the sworn enemies of God's people. They had tried to attack, they had tried to destroy, they had tried to take down the work that God was doing generations before. And King Saul of Israel was supposed to go and he was supposed to tear down the stronghold of Amalek. He was supposed to destroy these people, but he didn't. 
Instead, he wanted to do things the way that he wanted to do things. God removed the crown from Saul, and the Agagites continued to live to this day when Haman now, as he is disrespected by the Jewish Mordecai, feels the need to um, go on an extermination spree. He feels the need to get a decree passed that will ensure that all of the Jewish people within the Persian Empire are killed. And so we find this sin that has come up once again, and these people that once again rise up against God and the work that he's doing. And so today, what we're going to do is we are going to look at Esther's response to the situation. We see in the end of chapter 4 that Esther calls for prayer and fasting. And then we see in chapter 5, she decides, she sets her mind that she will go before the king, regardless of what it's going to cost her. Coming into this chapter, here's what you need to know. As Esther comes into the courtroom of the king, she is not invited. Even though she is the queen, even though she is his wife, even though she is royalty, she is not welcome in this room unless the king decides to welcome her. And so here she is putting her life at risk for the sake of herself and her people. Before we jump into the text this morning, I want to open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the story of Esther. I thank you for her courage, for her bravery, for her obedience. Many of the things that we're going to talk about here today. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would give me the words to say as we go into this text. I pray that you would give us understanding hearts, ones that would be uh, applicable in thinking how the word impacts our lives. Not just corporately, not just individually, but holistically in every realm of our being, how the word of God comes in its truth, just bears its weight. And so, Lord, today, as we open up this, this critical point, the, the climax of the book of Esther, I ask that you would um, give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom as we open this, your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in chapter 5, verse number 1, and let's begin reading here. The Bible says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And so here's, here's what's going on a little bit. This throne room was designed to uplift an earthly king. Uh, historians have found documents. They found some records and some writings. The Persians were great at record keeping. Um, they were very to the point. Um, they're not the most exciting reads at times, but they were very good at record keeping. And so we have some idea of what this throne room looked like. And from what we can tell, this throne room consisted, when you walked into the room, the first thing you saw very far away was the throne. You saw the king. The throne room was supported by pillars that were 65 feet tall, 65 feet tall. Throughout the room, the room was designed in such a way that these pillars aligned so that as soon as you passed a pillar, once again, the throne was visible. There was not a place within this throne room that the throne would be hidden. This was the might, this was the glory of the Medo-Persian Empire on display and embodied in a person, the King Ahasuerus. And so as Esther steps into this room, this is not a small private room. This is a room where the king's counselors are, where armed guards would surely have been present, where the king himself was sitting in his own way, high and lifted up of his own might and his own doing. And so as Esther steps into this room, we can just imagine the anxiety or the fear that would have been around her, right? 
None of us look at Esther and we don't, we see her being brave, but we don't see her not being scared. Okay. Let's keep reading. Let's see what the word of God continues to say. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courts, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. You see, what we're finding here is that even in all his glory, the king Ahasuerus is a very distant second place to the king of all kings. Because what does the scripture inform us of God's relationship to kings? I think of Proverbs chapter 21, verse number one. The word of God says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it like a stream of water. Picture this. The king's heart is held in the hand of the Lord. And it's turned like a stream of water. I was, uh, I, one of our boys the other day, uh, he was brushing his teeth, or we were brushing his teeth, and then we let him kind of do his thing and practice with it, right? And then he rinses off his toothbrush. He's two years old, okay? And so um, if, if we're still brushing his teeth when he's seven, eight, nine years old, we'll have a problem. But for two, you know, it's cute. So he's rinsing off his toothbrush, and I stepped out of the bathroom for a second, and um, then I realized what I did. And so I came back in the room, and uh, he ha- the water is turned on, cold water on the faucet, and uh, I see him taking his hand, and he's turning his hand over back and forth in the faucet. He's watching how that water is hitting his hand and reflecting. And whichever way he turns his hand, that water is moving to and fro. Now you say, well, that's a simple thing. We could all step to a sink or to a fountain right now and do the same thing. That is the ease with which God moves the heart of the king. It's not a difficult thing for him. You and I look at the heart of the king, the heart of a leader, the heart of a person of influence, and and we say, wow, if only we could have his ear. If only I could have influence with him. Well, God doesn't pray for influence with the leaders. God says, hey, listen, the heart, the direction they're going, I can turn it on a whim. We are talking, after all, about the God who spoke the world into existence. And so for him, this is a simple thing. And so we watch as in the heart of the Persian empire, the heart of the king, the one whose will determines the direction of this mighty kingdom, God turns his heart. Because understand this, the distance between you and the king is nothing compared to the gulf between the king and the king of kings. You see, Ahasuerus is just another man. Ahasuerus, if you remove the royal robes and you place him anywhere else, he's another human being. How many many people that are necessary people, how many people that are irreplaceable people lie in a tomb today? The difference between you, me, and anyone else is very insignificant compared to the difference between God and any human being. And so as Esther stepped in before the king, God had already been directing the heart of Ahasuerus and already been manipulating it to do his will. Let's continue reading. I want to get through this chapter and I want to come back and dig in a couple places. Verse number four says this. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king 
Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. What favor God has given to Esther, right? Let's keep reading. Then the king, uh, so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. The king is begging Esther to ask, right? The king is begging Esther to ask, but Esther in wisdom and in prudence, what does she answer? My wish and my request is I'm Jewish. Save my people. Is that it? No. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, remember, who does Ahasuerus love? Esther? No, he loves himself. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So what does Esther do? She plans, she finds the appropriate time and place and begins to work on the king. She understands God has given her wisdom that a public confrontation of Ahasuerus Probably doesn't go so well, does it? A public confront, who does the Hashuaras love? Himself. What happened to the previous queen, Vashti? She confronted, she said no to Hashuaras. How'd that work out? Well, God used it and God led through it. But Esther demonstrates wisdom. The conceit is manipulated here by the king of all kings. The tactics that Hashuaras had used so many times is being turned on himself. And really in the book of Esther, that's the work that God does. Because what we find at the end of this chapter is that God is giving Haman just enough rope to hang himself with. Verse number nine, Haman went out today, that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So he didn't kill him right then and there is basically what it's telling us. He sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which, with, with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So what does he do? He says, hey, guys, come over here really quick while I pat myself on the back. Who wants to be Haman's friend? What happens? Even the queen, Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. Tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows. Sometimes be careful who your friends are, right? Be careful who your friends are, who your counselors are. What, this, is some, this is some not great advice. What's going on? Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. You ready for a fun fact here? Uh, see the word gallows here. The literal word gallows is tree. It's tree. Um, one of there are a couple different interpretations that get used here, and this isn't the point of the book of Esther. So if you disagree with me, this isn't pause for one second. Okay. The word here is literally tree. What the, uh, what the Medes and the Persians like to do, uh, with people that they wanted to execute, uh, was they like to hang them on a tree. And what that means is a little different than the new Testament version or a little different than the gallows that uh, we think of today, the Western version of it. 
What they would do is they would take, this is 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet high. So remember those pillars, 10 feet above that wouldn't fit within the king's entryway, right? 75 feet high, and they would sharpen the point of this tree. And then they would impale their victims on this tree. Now, all of you are looking at me right now like, Nate, that is not a fun fact. There's nothing fun about that fact. Regardless of the exact method, what we know is that Haman not only wanted to kill Mordecai, he wanted to humiliate him. He wanted to shame him. He wanted to use him as an example of what happened when you crossed Haman. He wanted him to be 75 feet in the air, lifted high above the kingdom of Susa and the capital and Shushan. He wanted him to be there executed. This is what happens when you cross Haman. Before we, before we dig in here, before we dig in really deep, I want to I set up some groundwork. I want to set some framework here. And so we're going to pause in the book of Esther. Uh, I want to set some interpretive understanding for us, and then we're going to jump back into the book of Esther. Um, let me start with this. Have you, how many of you have ever been inside of a canyon of some sort, a cave of some sort? Anybody? few of us? Ooh, acoustically, what's really interesting about a cave or a canyon? It echoes, right? You say something, you shout, you clap your hands, and it feels like it goes on forever. It bounces around within that room. Um, in college, I like to hike a place. Jane, you, have you ever been to Devil's Punch Bowl? Yes. Jane's from uh, near where Cindy and I went to college out in Southern California. Um, and there's a beautiful park. It's called the Devil's Punch Bowl. Okay? There's no punch. I didn't meet any devils. But it's called the Devil's Punch Bowl. Um, it's a big kind of canyon area. There's a lot of rocks that jut up throughout this. And there's certain places that you can go and you can just shout. And it just bounces around this valley. It just bounces off the walls of these hills and mountains that are in this area. And it's really incredible to listen to. You see, in the Bible, the Gospels in the New Testament, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, um, these are historical biographies. These are writings telling of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus, we as Christians believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Word of God. In these Gospels, the message of Jesus is shouted loudly and clearly for everyone to hear. We as believers today are called to testify of these truths. In this way, today, we live our lives in some ways as an echo of the work that God has done through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we might call this a testimony. We might say that we bear witness of. And so we repeat the things that we have learned, that we have seen, that we have heard of Jesus Christ. We are called to testify of these truths. John chapter 13, this is Jesus' words as he's speaking. He says this. He said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Peter would write it this way in a passage we studied a couple of months ago. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. An example you see, before, but it's not just us, before Christ, throughout Scripture, 
There are things that stand as examples or echoes of Christ even before he was born. And in the New Testament, you find the authors coming and they go to the Old Testament and they say, Jesus himself said the sign of the prophet Jonah, speaking of the three days and nights in the belly of the whale as a sign of Christ and his three days and nights in the earth after his crucifixion, but before his resurrection. Now, there's a theological term that we call these things. These are called types. Types, or this is a this is a pattern of Jesus visible in the Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse number eleven. Paul would say it this way: These things, speaking of the Old Testament, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And that word there, that word example, is tupos. Tupos is the Greek word, and that's where we get the word type. So if you hear of a type of Christ, if someone ever uses that phrase, it comes from that Greek word, tupos. Can I say that together today? Tupos. Let's say it all together. Good job, guys. Roy, can you lead us? Just kidding. Um, Let's say it together. Tupos. So this word, tupos, it sounds just like type, and it was borrowed from the Greek, and it means an example. Sometimes it's translated as a copy or a pattern, or an image, or an example, or even directly as the word type. And like echoes, these are not identical, but they lead us back to the origin of the sound. For us as believers in Christ, that takes us back to the word. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse number 14, the Word became flesh. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Esther, this is one of, the, one of my favorite types of Christ that we find within the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you how. Look with me. Well, even before we go, we're just going to begin talking through the echoes of Christ in the book of Esther. First, like the Jews, we are sentenced to death. Like the Jews, we are sentenced to death. In the book of Esther, we find that the Jewish people have been condemned, and we really find this, that it's a result of the sin of a man by the name of Saul. But when we fast forward to Christ and his payment, his death, his burial, resurrection, this is the situation that we are in. The book of Romans chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. And the consequences of that, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter number 6, is that the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the payment of sin, as it's being paid out, is death. So here we are, you and me, standing condemned. As we come into chapter 5 of the book of Esther, the Jewish people were standing condemned. There was no hope for them in themselves. There was nothing they could do to reverse the decree of the king. It had been set in stone in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The king's speaking is his doing. It is the act that is going to happen. It cannot be changed. We likewise are people that have been set to perish. Not because of the sin of another, but because of our own sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that is not only a physical death, but we actually find that the scripture teaches it is a spiritual death, a separation from God for all of eternity. And so we, like the Jewish people, stand condemned to die. 
And we are in need of, secondly, we are in need of a mediator who can go before the king on our behalf. We are in need of a mediator who can go before the king on our behalf. Look at Esther. Who is Esther? Well, she was born Jewish, right? That is who she is. She numbers herself among the condemned people. But at the same time, she has something that is extraordinary about her. What is she able to do? She is able to go before the king, right? She is able to step into his presence because not only is she Jewish, she is also royalty. She is also kin to the king. And so in Christ, we see 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us that we have one mediator between God and men. Who is that? It's the man, Christ, Jesus. But at the same time, we also, if you studied the word of God, we understand that God sent his son, Jesus, but he's not only God, he is also man. And so as Jesus came, he was born in a human body. He was 100% man. He, was, he, was, he suffered like we do. He, he went through things like we do. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And so even though he faced the temptation that you and I face, and we fail because of our sin, we capitulate, we give in because of this sinful nature, we find that Jesus didn't do that, did he? He lives a perfect life. Because why? Not only is he man, he is also God. So we have a mediator, one that is both God and man, who is able to go to the king on our behalf. In the book of Esther, we find that Esther, as she goes before the king, she risks her life. She knows the penalty of the king's wrath, does she not? It's death. She risks her life. But here, understand this with me. Esther is not like Christ. Jesus is not like Esther. Jesus is a better Esther. Because what do we know about Christ? Even as Esther risked death, Jesus embraced it. He embraced it. I think of his words, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You see where Jesus, where God whispers through Esther, he shouts through Christ. And so we have a savior, a mediator that not only was willing to risk his own life on your behalf and on my behalf, but he actually embraced death for you and for me so that we through him might be saved. Then we find in the book of Esther that God's enemies, they're given just enough rope to hang themselves with. What does Haman begin to do? It's going to be revealed in the next couple of chapters. He begins to build the gallows. Does anyone see any possible problem with Haman's gallows? Any any foresight that we might have with the enemy of God's people constructing a massively visible way to execute God's people? No problem there at all, right? God's just letting out the rope. Haman's going to do it to himself. God's not the one that's chasing down Haman to destroy him. Haman's the one moving to himself towards destruction. You see, the cross was the nail in the coffin for the enemies of Christ. 
Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 30, we read this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's he saying? The enemies of Christ, Herod, Pilate, Jewish leaders, they gathered themselves together to seek to do harm to Christ. But what did they do? Instead, they did whatever your hand, the Lord, and your plan, the Lord's, had predestined to take place. Even as they were trying to defeat Christ and silence him, what did they do? They amplified his voice. They fulfilled the work that God was already doing. And so we find these magnificent parallels in the book of Esther with the the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we would call the gospel. And even as Esther risked herself on behalf of her people, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave himself for you. Maybe you're sitting in this room today, And you've never placed your faith in Christ. Maybe as I say these things, as I speak of being condemned to death, you'd say, hey, that's that's not what I want. None of us desire to be condemned. Well, let me tell you today, just as Esther went before the king, and just before, as the king showed favor on Esther and her people, you see, the sacrifice that Christ gave was an approved sacrifice. It was a sufficient sacrifice. And so like Esther begins the work of making peace between the king and the Jewish people, Jesus has already made peace between you and God. He has made it possible that you can place your faith in him, and today you can be saved from that condemnation. As believers in Christ, as Christians, when we use the word saved, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being saved from the penalty of sin, and that is death. That is separation from God for all of eternity and being reunited to peace being made through the work of that mediator. And it can be, it's for you. It's for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Believers in Christ today, believers in Christ today. Before we finish, I want to take one quick glance. One quick glance back at what Esther does at the beginning of this chapter. You see, because Esther and Christ are both, Esther a great example, Jesus the perfect example of obedience to the will and the work of God. Both did what they did as a result of obeying God in terrifying circumstances. None of us would want to be in the position that they are in, would we? We look at those things and we can feel the anxiety that would have welled up regardless of which direction, but yet they chose to obey. And so as we conclude today, as we wrap up today, as we approach our time of invitation today, I want to look at three truths about obedience. Three truths about obedience that we find here in chapter 5, and we're going to move quickly through these. First, I want you to understand this. Obedience is risky. Obedience is risky. If you follow God long enough, you understand Obedience calls us outside of our comfort zone. God's call on your life is not to stay in a bubble. It's not to surround yourself and hedge yourself from anything that might threaten what you perceive to be your well-being. That is not the work that God has called us to. 
Here, Esther's obedience brought her face-to-face with death. Esther was willing to risk everything to obey, and true obedience requires risk. You see, there will be a day when there will be no sorrow, when tears will be wiped away, when we are with Christ forever, those things will be made true. But if tears have to be wiped away, what does that imply? It implies that we have tears, do we not? David wrote in the Psalms, he said, Lord, you've kept my tears in a bottle. Aren't they in your book? David's words. David knew tears. Read through the Psalms. He knew pain. He knew heartache. Faith and obedience requires risk. It will make us uncomfortable. If it were, if it were comfortable, it wouldn't be faith. You can't take a step of faith without it being a risk. See, Esther risked everything, her position, even her life. When was the last time that you took a risk because of your faith in Christ? When was the last time that you took a risk because of your faith in Christ? As the pastor of this church, I care too much about you and about your faith not to ask you to take risks. Because obedience requires risk. One person, he said it this way, uh, more often than not, being brave means doing it scared. If we're going to be brave for the work that God has called us to, there are going to be times that we're going to be a little fearful, right? There are going to be times that we're going to feel a little uncomfortable, a little anxious. Not only is obedience risky, but obedience is costly. Obedience is costly. Uh, One man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he spends the first couple chapters explaining how being a disciple of Christ requires something. I would encourage you to read Luke chapter number 14, where Jesus speaks of discipleship. And he says, hey, if anyone comes to me and hates not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The way that Bonhoeffer would say it is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, obedience is costly. It did cost Esther her comfort, did it not? It did cost Jesus his life. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 12? Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. God's economy is all kinds of messed up, isn't it? You want to love your life? Well, then lose it. You want to keep your life? Give it up. You want to hang on to it? I'm sorry. It's not yours to have. What does your obedience cost you? If it's cost you nothing, what's it worth? What is your faith worth? If it's a faith that, if an obedience that costs you nothing. But maybe it costs your pride. As we have to swallow that and admit our own insufficiencies, admit our own wrongdoings, admit our own shortcomings. Maybe it means the cost of your comfort. Maybe it means things that you would like to do that you have to give up and you have to say yes to a better thing that God has called you to. Understand this church, understand this individual. You can't say yes to everything. There are things in your life, just by being here today, there are things that you're saying no to. The same is true with the rest of your life. What are the things that are worth saying yes to? It might cost you finances. You see, our church is a generous church. I am so grateful. We are blessed by that. 
Our church has been faithful through giving. That's a wonderful thing that allows us to do the work that God has called us to. But it costs you something. It costs you something. We don't want to sit there and think about all the things we could have bought if we had not tithed for generations, right? But then if you look at the work of God, where would the work of God have gone? Well, surely God would have raised up deliverance from another place. But where would you be? You see, God grows us through our generosity. God grows us through holding these things loosely. God increases our faith through our obedience. It'll cost you energy. We had a team that came out yesterday morning that helped us. If you came in the building, uh, it, was, it was shining this morning, wasn't it? There's a team that came out, and they, man, they put the hand to the plow, and they did work. And there's so many that have a history of faithfulness in this church. Serving God, obedience requires energy. You know what? It may even cost you a relationship or two. Because you understand that obedience to Christ means this. Obedience to Christ means that we obey his great commission, his great command. Obedience to Christ means that I am looking for others that I can share the gospel with. I am building a relationship with others to whom I can give Christ. But Nate, what if, what if they reject me because I give them the gospel? Obedience is costly. Paul would say it this way, book of Romans, he says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and to the Jews. I'm a debtor. I owe them the gospel of Christ. You think Paul ever got rejected? Of course he did. Because you know who else got rejected? Jesus. Jesus. The one that we're called to model ourselves after. He said, hey, don't, don't, be, don't be surprised. Gary, don't be surprised. Jacob, don't be surprised. Matt, don't be surprised. People are going to reject you because they rejected me. So I would be surprised when people reject us because we seek to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, my friends, I would rather stand before God and have him say, hey, I know those people walked away from you because you shared your faith and say, hey, why didn't you share your faith with those people? Why did you care enough about them to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? God's called us and God's calling costs something. You see, Obedience is risky, it's costly, and obedience is dangerous. Obedience is dangerous. And you say, Nate, it's kind of redundant. No, 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 no. Obedience is not dangerous to you, it is. That's not what I mean here. See, your obedience is like a weapon that God can use against his enemy. You see, we already covered the cost and the risks, but obedience is the weapon that God uses to destroy his enemies. You see, Esther's obedience begins the pathway towards Haman's downfall. Christ's obedience puts death in the grave. George Herbert says it this way. He said, death used to be an executioner. The gospel has made him just a gardener. Death used to be an executioner. The gospel has made him just a gardener. You see, death has been disarmed through the obedience of Jesus Christ. And God can use your obedience too. God can use you as you tell that neighbor about Jesus. God can use you as you look for coworkers who are lost, who are far from him, to encourage them. That family member that you're praying for, that they'll come to know him. God can use you in your obedience. But if we keep waiting for the perfect day to do these things, we could very well wait too long. Because the fact is, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, either that the Lord will return, or we don't know our life. It's but a vapor. It appears for a little while, then it vanishes away. We don't know what a day holds, but Christ 
does. God does, and he calls you to obey him. As the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, he calls you towards obedience. Maybe your calling is to to be a part of a group, to grow together with others, and you say, but I don't know people, or but I'm bashful, or I'm shy. Hey, understand this. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. You don't find people that are doing it on their own in in isolation in the New Testament. What do they come? They come and they they one another each other. It's hard to one another yourself. He's called us into community. He's called us into his word. Maybe there's someone in here that God's calling you to get baptized. You've never been baptized before. You say, but man, I just don't want to be in front of people. Understand this. Your obedience, it's risky, it's costly, it will cost you something. Maybe your own pride, maybe your own self-consciousness, but it's a weapon that God can use to reach your family members, to reach your loved ones, to do a work, to encourage the body of Christ. God will use those things. When we obey, God gets the glory. And so today, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you to respond to the work of Christ. Maybe today you're in here and you, you, you say, I, I am condemned. I don't know Jesus is my Savior, but I want to place my faith in him today. There's a mediator. You can trust him. He's already done the work. I'd love to show you from the word of God how you can know that. Or maybe today you're a believer and God's calling you to live a life of obedience. You say, Nate, it's risky. I know. I know. I'm here. I'm in it with you. It's risky. You say, Nate, it's going to cost me something. I can tell you that right now. Hey, yeah, yeah. It's going to cost you something. But understand this. It's dangerous to the enemies of God. You want to take Satan down? You want to go into his territory and begin claiming things that God has given to his people? It's a weapon. That obedience is dangerous to the work of the enemies of God.